If you have your Bibles, would you open them with me today to John chapter 20 as we continue our expository series through John. We're coming close to its end. We're very much looking forward this fall to getting into Romans. Ah, I have just started to devour it up by, by breaking it up and outlining it in our, our preaching team here, me, Pastor Pete, Pastor Josh, we're just, uh, I'm drooling over Romans. I mean, it's, it's got to be uh, among the greatest of the epistles, and um, uh, we'll talk about a lot more of that later, what the church fathers said about it and whatnot. But <clears throat> anyway, just know that that's where we're headed in the months ahead. But John chapter 20, we're in verse number 30. I did read these two verses last week, as we sh- but uh, these two verses, and these two verses alone is where we're going to concentrate this morning. Verse 30 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there's three big ideas I I like for us to look at today, and I want us to contemplate them fully They are the very essence of the gospel message. They are just the very facts and the centerpieces of all that pertains to Christology, if you will, the essence of who Jesus was in the Godhead and his relationship to mankind as well. So the first statement that I want to pick apart here is I want us to look at what John says first, many other signs in the presence of disciples. Let's take a look at this one at a time. First, John writes, uh, that Jesus did a ton of stuff that wasn't, he, that wasn't written about. And so we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and their accounts, these historical records, these three books are called uh, theologically the synoptic gospels. The synoptic is, shares the same root word with synonymous, so you get the idea. Matthew and Luke are very much historians in that respect. They share a lot of similarities. So we have a doctor, a fisherman, and a tax collector, but then we have uh, uh, historically a teenager, John, writing what he heard and saw Jesus, and he was around Jesus. So some scholars say that John very well could have had Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels as he wrote his own. He writes much differently, and it's so impressive that there's such harmony between all of them, uh, the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John. But, but there are some things that John doesn't write about, but he writes the essence of theologically. John doesn't write about the Lord's Supper. It's not mentioned. He, uh, the examples of casting out demons, he doesn't write about those. Uh, the Sermon on amount the lord's prayer are also things that john doesn't write about and there are there's no narrative parables in the gospel in john's gospel except maybe the vine and the branches but the vine and the branches isn't really a parable it's more of a, a symbolism that jesus is using to talk about himself it's not a story that jesus teaches from so and so and and, and the other gospels write from a descriptive way that 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 more doctrinal energy and uh, uh, on the divinity of Jesus though is is written about by John and who Christ is in the world that big word called Christology it's a theological study of of who Jesus was so at the point of this is that John was so incredibly impacted by what Jesus did while he was on earth. At the end of 21, he even writes in John 21, 25, now there were also many other things that Jesus did. 
many other things, he says, were every one of them written. I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would have been written. Now, surely he's exaggerating a little bit, but he's, he, what he's trying to relay is that Jesus did a lot of incredible things that we didn't write down because it was just all happening so fast. There were so many things that centered around the person of Jesus and the things that he did. It would have been <clears throat> very difficult to account for all of them. His healing, his teaching, his life, the way that he lived, all of them to be written down. There was too much narrative to write. I couldn't possibly, he says, in essence, write them all myself. He's saying it was so big. Um, this is important. And the principle of this is important because, friends, God is not limited to what you and I know. God is not limited by what you and I know. Now there's some smart people in this room and you know a lot of stuff. Some of you have been a lot of places. Some of you have a lot have had a lot of education. Experiences to me are the best teacher. Give me someone with great experience over an education almost all the time, right? In in a lot of settings anyway. But we all, there's a lot of people that know a lot of things. And there's some very smart people, but they seem not to be very wise. The Bible says in the end there's going to be a falling away because the plethora of knowledge, right? But not all, not all knowledge has to be true. So God is not limited by what you know. And let me tell you, there's some times that you think you know something and God goes beyond. And God is willing to go beyond. And God is not limited by what your experiences have been. You know, my experiences with God are thus and thus. Some people say, well, you know, God never really did this in, for my life, or, or I've, I've seen, you know, him only go so far here. It doesn't mean that God's done with you and your experiences. Your experiences have a long way to go with God. God is vast. Uh, you know, like Francis Chan said, I've quoted it many times, if, if my head and my brain is the size of a soda can, and God is the ocean, who am I think I can scoop him up and figure him out? It's just not impossible. He's not limited by what your experiences have been. God is not limited by what your experiences with him have been either. God is not limited by your expectations. God is not required to stop being God just because we may not feel like it. This is the reason, right, that we keep seeking. This is the reason we keep asking God for his wisdom and direction. This is the reason that we pray for Haiti and we pray for Afghanistan. This is the reason that we pray for wisdom, for raising our children. Um, and friends, when you pray for your children, you can, you can pray knowing that God is not limited by anything and that he can and that he will answer. Um, he may say wait. He may say not now. He may say yes. He is the father though. He is our loving father. And we are his children. The recipient of his love. So we need to trust our all wise powerful father. Our loving father. And he will answer. And you know what? He can do it. He is the designer. He is the creator. And as our loving father. He will, he will do all things according to his will. With our best interest in mind. Sometimes we may not like that because we think we have a better plan. But God is Father. And you know, that's just the way that it is. God has always been able. John says, hey, there's so much stuff here. I couldn't possibly write about all of it. And, and that it did. It amazed all of us. It's truly more than I can describe. And that's how God has always been. I'm reminded of God in Job chapter 38. I don't know, prior to that, um, 
Elihu comes. Finally, had all the pity parties surrounding Job with his buddies. And finally, the young Elihu shows up and he spews out all this stuff that God is and how God really is. You guys are all pathetic. You're not listening to what God has to say. And then God answers Job in chapter 38. And God basically says, Who, where were you when I created everything? Where were you when I flung the stars in the sky? He said, where were you when I created all that you see? Where were you? And he basically, God basically says, if I can summarize it in the LEV version, that's the Larry Ellis version. God basically says, hey, Job, I got to tell you something. What I say is true. Now, listen, now God deliberately, literally says this in Job chapter 38. He says, be a man. (laughs) You know what that means? Even if you're a woman, we get it, right? In other words, stand up, take responsibility for my word. God says, not what you're feeling, because Job, you know, though he slay me, yet he'll serve me. He's got a great spirit about it, right, most of the time all the way through. But, uh, you know, when we look at this portion of Scripture, God's saying, now that you've heard what I have done and who I am, be a man. Know that I'm your creator. That's a comforting, consoling thought. So today, friends, we can trust God. I know if you've ever been to the end of your your hope, the end of yourself, trusting God is the only place you have to go. Um, um, When John says any signs, I can identify with this. We've all been there. I've been there. I've been in a place where I've needed the many other signs. As, As John writes about, I've cried out to God as a child wrestling with issues. I've cried out to God as a teenager with most things that teenage young men wrestle with. I've cried out as a husband for my wife. I've cried out as a father to my, to my boys and still for them as men. I've cried out as a pastor in a pandemic. Um, <clears throat> it's hard when it, very few of us are in the sanctuary together. When That's what God calls the church to be, right? It, it's tough. We had, you know, a couple years ago, and I say this, and this is not ever good. Thank you, Larry. What a great name, Larry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was free. Yeah, you get what you pay for. I've, <laughs> uh, take it easy on him, man. He's a newbie here. Um, to see the grace of God in my life and what God has done is, is an astounding thing. Because, you know, when I look back, besides... All the things that have happened to me, I recognize that God is still graceful and he's still good. And I have no other option, we have no other option than to reach out to him. Um, Ephesians 3 verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we may ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. What a powerful scripture. I thought I had it up there, but apparently I don't. I love the fact that God says he is the one in charge. He is the one that we can ask because he will do abundantly beyond what we ask or think. Secondly, look at the second phrase that he uses. He says, I've written these things so that you will believe Jesus is the Christ. Now, in verse 31, 
he says, this is the purpose that I've written this. So here it is, the reason that John writes this, the reason that he puts all this in perspective, and that John's gospel and his, basically his story with Jesus, the other gospel writers record it like someone looking at facts and history, which is important, right? I mean, without their accounts, we, we have just one person telling from their perspective, and that can get lost in the annals of history and be just a, a folklore or a story. But John's writing is about being with Jesus and in, in, in more intimate relationship and contact. And it explains why, he's, uh, why he is Christ. He talks about this and why this is important. And he starts with this in his opening sentence that in the... In the very beginning of John's gospel, he says, In the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. He equates, he puts Jesus as, as, as God, as divine. And, and that beginning part is really important. That Jesus, he goes on to reveal how Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled the messianic prophecies concerning the Savior of the world, the Redeemer of the Jews, the Savior of kind, the Christ, the coming King. And the Jews have been waiting for Jesus, right? I mean, they've been on the pins and needles. They're tired. Jesus is the Christ, and that word Christ is significant. Christ means anointed one, something of great significance because of, of what he's been anointed for, right? Anointed people in Scripture were, were kings and priests, and only one prophet, Elisha, was anointed that we have record of in Scripture anyway. And, uh, it was a commission, right? It's an approval. It's, it's saying this person is appointed to this position. It was it, an anointing is a representation of the one who is anointing. The one who is anointing is giving the power, is giving the stamp of approval. It's an appointment to an office, if you will, even. And so Jesus reads in the temple, and where does he read from? He, read from, he reads from his gospel. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, he, he quotes this, and it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and his, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Is set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus' purposes are clear, right? Uh, first of all, to preach the good news to who? The poor. Don't you find that statement amazing? That one of Jesus' anointed purposes was to preach the good news to the poor. Now, what is the poor in that regard? Is it just those who are, don't have any money? Uh, what is Jesus talking about there? And the, the, do, don't you find it interesting that Jesus says that he's come to preach the gospel to the poor? And, and I, uh, he goes right into the fact of the matter, and it's not the first time. He says it earlier that he, he says he didn't come to call those who are well. He came, those who are sick are the ones who need a physician, right? He goes into great detail. And, and um, you know, being a, being a sin-filled person is an impoverished person. It's someone who is far from God. That is someone who is poor. That is someone who has nothing. There are many people who uh, just deny that, and we try to push it aside and say, I don't need Christ. And, and there are many in this world that have pushed that aside and say, I don't need Christ. But friends, that is the most impoverished state one could be in. That is the most desperate point at which someone is. Then he says to set free. And look at the list. He says to set free captives, the blind, and those oppressed. 
Now, the captives, is we understand what captivity is, right? Someone takes you free to roam about, do whatever you will, sing songs out of key, do whatever you want, and someone takes you and throws you in jail and muzzles you and puts you in confinement in a place where you are bound, where you are captive. You have no escape. Like sitting in a professor's class, it's really boring. You can't get out of there. You just got to sit there and take it on those stupid hard wooden seats. Why don't they make them cushioned? I have no idea. And droning on and on about something. And after a while, they developed this little yellow string in their... Uh, have you seen that? Anybody seen that? Die, 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 die. You start talking like this. Like, Osmosis, the diffusion of water through a semi-permeable membrane. It was saying. And, it's really good. and you're like, man, am I supposed to pass this class or fall asleep? You know, I just didn't want... Anyway, many of you are way beyond that. Some of us way beyond that. Um... But being captive, not being able to escape. Jesus says, I have come to bring the captives out of bondage. Aren't you glad for that? Because, friends, there are a lot of things that keep us captive today. The blind. He talks about setting the blind, opening blind. Not only did Jesus perform physical healing and pass that mantle and that anointing onto his church today, but those who are unable to see the trueness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the freedom that he sees. What does the Bible say? That sin has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. Blindness of that, the sin, it causes us not to be able to see the freedom and the hope that there is. And then he says, and those oppressed by the enemy. And I love that. I am so glad that Jesus brings salvation from oppression. Now, no believer who is saved can be possessed by Satan. But friends, we can be oppressed by the devil. The Bible says that even believers are subject to the prince and power of the air that is in this world that we live in today. And so, friends, i got to tell you, if you're feeling oppressed, if you're feeling pushed on, if you're feeling confined a little bit, just worship Jesus. You know, it is that worship, and every time you use the word of Jesus, his name, the name of Jesus, you know, Satan hates that. Anytime you worship Christ, Satan hates that. And the Bible said that, that God will is beating Satan when you worship. When you stop worship, he quits beating him. So I, I think we ought to worship a little more. All right. Then he says, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, when Jesus reads this part of the verse from Isaiah 61, interestingly enough, Jesus stops mid-sentence. He doesn't continue reading on in this portion of the text. This is important because the rest of the scripture is all about the judgment to come. It's all about harshness of the reality of, of the, the things that's, that's about to happen. And so Jesus stops, really, I believe, to show that he is the Savior from all of these things. He is the one that's really coming again. And he will return and, and we'll really see him one day face to face and you know the purpose of Jesus here is powerful because he is revealing in, in essence that he is the returning Jesus the time of the return of Christ is ever near and I know if you've been in church for any amount of time at all you've heard since you were knee high to a grasshopper Jesus could come this afternoon Jesus could come next minute Jesus but I, you know if we look at our world friends and there's been chaos in the past, and, but the, 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 the plethora of information, the connectivity of our world has even made things more clear. And I won't get back into our, our, our prophecy in connection with modern times, but as we see that, we see uh, what Jesus is and who he is in this regard. He says, I am the one who knows. You know, the purpose of Jesus is powerful, but you know what I find even more compelling when he quotes 
puts all these things, but who it is that anoints him. He says, the quotes right here, the Holy Spirit is the one who anoints him. The Holy Spirit is the one that gives him this approval, this impact to do what he will as he becomes completely human, yet knowing the will of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, I love this because it equates that same thing that Jesus had with us today. It says that the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells where? Outside, just uh, in somebody we don't know. Uh, no, in you and I. That the Holy Spirit dwells in us. In us, I love that that song that Jeremy Camp. Same power rose Jesus from the grave. Yeah, the same power that commands the winds and waves lives in us. Lives in us. I love that, right? And he's just singing this scripture. The same prayer that was Jesus from the grave lives in us. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes life hits hard. And as we journey through the Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays of life, and the family trials mount, and there's more month than money perhaps, or there are issues with people, or there's tension in our life and our workplace, and there's, there's people who reject us or hurt us or push us away. Life serves its blows. All of those things mount up. And I think that there's something to be said, though, friends, about the believer who's able to understand this scripture right here, that it doesn't matter what people might do to me. It doesn't matter what people can say. It doesn't matter what government is going to force upon me. It doesn't matter anything about this. I know that the same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in me. He lives in me. And friend, if we hold on to that and, and proclaim that and speak these words of life as we pray, God's Holy Spirit, he never leaves us. John writes, he goes on. And he says, I've written these things so that you may, quote, have life in his name. Have life in his name. John ends this part with two big deals. The first is believing. The first part of the verse in John 21, 31, B, if you will, he says, and that by believing you may have life in his name. By believing. See, believing is the key. Believing in Jesus, that he is God, and that he is the only Savior, is John's hope for writing all of his life story here with us about Jesus. And believing is our only part in this whole thing. Our believing is a big deal, that we are stepping from death to life, that we are now having a confidence. In, in Jesus. We now place our faith above all other things we have trusted in before. And we're saying, believe in Jesus. It's just like a, it's a salvation lifeline. It's always there. God has thrown it out. We're sinking in water. The life preserver's there. He's holding rope. He's, it's right there beside us. All we've got to do is grab on. That is the believing part. That is our portion. The strength to pull us in. The strength to throw the salvation out. The strength to together has already been done. It is our job just to believe. The need for Savior is great. You know, for myself, it was salvation from religion. And you from whatever yours was. Not only for salvation from my sin, but my religion became my sin. Early on when I was a youth pastor, and, and I was just um, trying to be like all of those around me. And what I would do is I would preach hard on, to my youth group, and it grew. 
you know. And, uh, but I would pretty much tell them every Wednesday that they were all going to hell and they needed Jesus. It's easy as a youth pastor. You could just say that over and over again every week. And every week they would respond, yeah, I'm going to hell. But I began to realize when I became a pastor that that's not really what I need to be saying all the time, especially to believers. Now, we understand the significance of hell. I'm not minimizing hellfire and brimstone, amen? I mean, that's important. But the power of God hit me one day right here in this room and... Um, and I began to ask God, you know, what's next? And things had, this was many years ago. And God spoke to my life and reminded me of his grace. And the message of God's grace overshadows any of my work or my ability. No matter how talented or good I can be, no matter how well I can practice all the things I need to practice, all of a sudden, the reality of God's grace is sufficient no matter who I am or what I've done. And my, so I had, you know, grown up in church. My, my dad planted four churches that started in our living room. I have an uncle who's a, a leader of a complete network of churches in Florida. I grew up in this thing. I knee high to a grasshopper. I know when to stand up and sit down. I, I know when to sing and clap. I, I know all of the things to do. And, and, and to me, in part because I had been in that so much, it wasn't until those moments, and I had some of them at camps growing up, but it wasn't in, until those moments right there in that aisle laying on my face sucking carpet that the goodness of God's grace shone through me and said Larry it's not by how good you are he said I, you know I, I can use you and I can work through you but you don't have to perform all these things perfectly it's not about that and, and that's true drastically because when you preach that way, you get a congregation that thinks that way. And, and we had a lot going on there. And it just blew the doors off the place. All of a sudden, a church that was growing and two services went to one. The first Sunday that struck me, I turned the pulpit on its front, tore the bottom off the thing, <laughs> said, no more sacred cows. I mean, it wasn't a very good, the former pastor had built it. So um, anyway, I pretty much broke the norm. But God began to change me and helped me to realize that it's by his grace. And friends, today, it's still by his grace. And you recognize this in your life, and I hope you do. And if you haven't, let me just share it with you just for a moment. It's real simple. There's just a couple sentences. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And you're not good enough. On that cross. He's, John says, I wrote all of it that you would believe and that Savior, and, and notice he doesn't just say life here. He said, you know, the world says get a life, right? I mean, uh, lots of people get a life with lots of stuff and ideas. But, but John says, in his name. Not just a life, but get a life in his name. So let me ask you, how is your life in Jesus' name? The name of Jesus, the name uh, of Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus the anointed the, uh, by the Holy Spirit, Jesus your advocate, Jesus your resurrection and life, Jesus your good shepherd, your living water, Jesus the high priest, Jesus your rock, Jesus your mediator, Jesus the invisible and in, invisible God, Jesus the light of the world, the, the author and finisher of your faith, the Savior, the Bible calls him the Prince of Peace and the King of Kings, Jesus the way, Jesus the truth, and Jesus the life, the dawn of the morning, healer and redeemer. So how is your life in Jesus' name? Do you have his name in your family? Is it, is it Jesus' family? 
Do you have his name in your marriage? Is it the couple Jesus? Do you have his name in your work? Do you have his name when you speak? And, and I don't mean in a curse word. Do you have his name in the ears and eyes of your children, your family members and co-workers? Do you have, him, do you have the name of Jesus above every name in your life? Do you have life in his name as John writes? That's a different way to put it, right? John says you want to have, have life in Jesus' name. Does he give you hope? Do you find strength and contentment? in all that Jesus is. Because that's what he says here, that, that you would have life in his name. He doesn't say you would have death in his name. He doesn't say you'll have, <coughs> excuse me, just getting by in his name. He doesn't say you're going to have to just endure all of the garbage. He doesn't say you're going to have to just kind of get, you know, measle lie. You're not just, you're going to have life in his name. Life means alive. It means not dead. It means moving and action and happening and animated and, and things going on in your family, in your life, in your work, in your marriage, and in your children and all the things that go on. And you would have life in his name. Remember John wrote earlier back in chapter 10 when he makes the Pharisees ticked off. He says basically they're thieves. You know, he's talking about that the good, the good shepherd speaks to his sheep and the sheep recognize the good shepherd's voice. And then he says in verse 10, but the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Can you imagine? Their heads must have exploded. Yeah. I mean, they're just standing there and he says, but the thief comes to kill. <laughs> but then he says, that word, that part of the scripture that our church is named for, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is why I became a pastor. Right here. This is the reason that I've been doing this for 30 years. This is it right here. This right here, because my greatest desire is for people to know Christ and grow deeper in their relationship with him. To live, Jesus would have us live, a life, a life in victory, a life in power, a life where contentment is present in a sick, discontent world. A world with values upside down where good is evil and evil is good and, and in a world where people are broken and searching for some satisfaction, some contentment that I have known and tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Life abundantly is about all the wealth we can acquire. It's about experiencing the joy of the Lord in spite of wealth. Life isn't about all the experiences, entertainment, and thrills that we can have. That all comes to an end. All of our work comes. I hope the work on this building comes to an end. <laughs> I am so tired of our old building. Maybe we should just, well, let's not talk about that. Uh, don't read anything. If it burns down tomorrow, I don't want the insurance company to look at this message and say, wow, what happened? No. <laughs> Only if it's burned by the fire of the Spirit. Right? Life, in the, life abundant is not about the next fix, right? It's, it's not about getting drunk or relying on any substance or substitute. It's about just intimacy with Christ. It's about knowing Christ. Abundant life in Christ is just that. It's abundant life in Christ. 
Aren't you grateful for that? Radically abandoned of everything, and I mean radically abandoned of everything else, and only looking at Jesus, pressing into the prize of knowing him until I experience that joy in his spirit, and hang on in his presence. Don't let go. Don't offer flare prayers and think that that's the extent of my relationship with God. Like I'm praying for lunch. God is great. God is good. Thank you for this food. Let's eat. No. Lord, I want to hold on to you until I sense your presence. I, I would bargain to say that there's very few that may do this. And friends, this is really important. We, we need to be in that place where we will seek intimacy with Christ every day. <coughs> it is of extreme importance. Pressing in. It's a, it's a different life. It's very different. And it makes me want to do different kinds of things. It gives me different appetites. It helps me consider others. I love Jim Elliott's famous quote. There are among many others, those guys that were um, went in there and, and never came out, those missionaries flew in. But in his journal, he wrote those words, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he could never lose. And this is what John writes the gospel for. He says right here, he says, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and have life in him. That's the good news. Amen.